You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. It's a great pleasure to be on this BJSM podcast with Professor Kim Harmon. Kim's well known to sports physicians all around the world, and she's been a tremendous leader at the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. Specifically, she's a team physician at the University of Washington, where she takes care of the football team, as well as the women's basketball team. She is a foundation board chair at AMSSM. And today we're talking about concussion, and Kim chaired AMSSM's detailed analysis of the concussion guidelines and their suggestions for how to implement the concussion guidelines. Kim, thanks for joining BJSM Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Who should be evaluating concussion? That's a really great question. You know, the person who should be evaluating concussion is someone who is experienced in it, who has been trained in it. And so I don't think that there's any particular specialty that really owns evaluation of concussion. I don't think that it's necessarily neurologists or family physicians or pediatricians. I think it's the physician who actually is interested in concussion and is knowledgeable about concussion. And in fact, there's many different specialties that would fall into that category. And specifically, sports physicians, I think, get that just as part of their training. And so AMSSM physicians are physicians or primary care physicians, so family physicians, pediatricians, emergency medicine physicians, physical medicine and rehabilitation physicians, um, or uh, internists who have had additional training in sports medicine, which includes training in concussion. And so um, those are physicians that have had extra training. Athletic trainers have had um, extra training in concussion. And there's also sorts of different routes that one could take to become educated about um, concussion. So I think that the key is that if someone is educated and experienced in evaluation and management concussion, not that they come from a particular specialty. And how does AMSSM support training of people to get this special expertise, Kim? Well, AMSSM is a big supporter and provide a support structure for the fellowship training. And in the United States, at least, um, we educate our sports medicine physicians through our fellowship structure. So that's a subspecialty training of, um, of sports physicians. And then in addition, after people get out of uh, their um, initial training, we have continuing medical education um, as just part of our annual meeting, part of the advanced team physician courses that we offer. And so there's a, a big focus because, of course, concussion is uh, a hot topic and interesting, and, and it's changing all the time. We're learning more about it. And so this has been a big focus of our continuing medic- medical education efforts. So in terms of evaluation tests, there are sideline tests and then neuropsychological tests, of course. And what does the AMSSM document say about the initial testing, Kim? It depends when you actually see an athlete, um, what sort of test you want to use. And, um, and those tests will have different sensitivity and specificity depending when you use it. So when you're seeing an athlete on a sideline, uh, there's been many different sideline tests that have been developed um, to try and give you a framework um, to help you evaluate that athlete. The most common ones that have been used and recommended is the SCAT-2, which was came out of the consensus meeting in Zurich. And there's a recent Zurich meeting, and there should be an additional update to that scat coming out soon, which we look forward to. But I think the thing that this consensus really brings out is that these sideline tests really are just a framework. 
um, you have to use these tests in in a, a bigger picture type of setting. So you've got to look at these tests in the context of the patient overall situation, Kim? So when you're looking at these tests, um, it, it, it can be different depending on the patient or the athlete that you're looking at. It's going to be different in somebody who's in middle school versus somebody who's in high school versus somebody who's in college or even a professional athlete. And the test might be different um, in any individual um, if they've had a bad day or say if they've just broken up with their girlfriend. And so it's very, very helpful, actually, if as a team physician that you actually know the athlete and you know, have some idea of their baseline. And there's been a lot of work done with the SCAT 2 of actually having a baseline on board. So you do these tests um, at the beginning of the season, so you have a um, idea of how an individual performs on this test under standardized conditions, and then you can sort of compare it to how they're doing it in game time conditions. But even in the best of conditions, those those tests can be different. And so you really have to um, look at the whole picture in terms of what the athlete has in terms of symptoms, what the injury looked like, and um, how they feel, then the framework of tests to give you an idea of what's really going on. And Kim, once the athlete comes back to see you a few days after the incident in the office and say their symptoms have settled, do you use neuropsychological tests? Well, the neuropsychological test is is a, a big question and it's it's fairly controversial and there's a lot of people that are um, using them now. There's a lot of people that are very interested in getting these because everybody's concerned about concussion now, and, and we all want to do the very best that we can in taking care of them, and parents are concerned about um, not letting their children play with concussions. So the, the most common type of neuropsychological test is a computerized neuropsychological test, and these um, are best done if you have a preseason baseline. And so many high school or middle school students won't have a preseason baseline, so then they become more difficult to interpret um, afterwards. Uh, at the college level, oftentimes we do have a preseason baseline. I think with the computerized neuropsychological test, these can be helpful tests. It's another piece of information. But like any test, you have to interpret that test um, keeping in mind the sensitivity of the test, the specificity of the test, the reliable change in index, and really know the limitations of that test before you interpret it. And so just um, it, it's not a yes-no answer. You um, really need to understand the test before you know what it means. And you also need to use it in the bigger clinical picture. So if somebody had a perfect test but they still had symptoms, it really wouldn't mean much. And if somebody didn't have any symptoms and their test still wasn't perfect, again, it's not clear what that means. And so computerized neuropsychological tests, I think, are another helpful piece of information, but they need to be part of the bigger clinical picture and not all of the clinical picture. What about preventing concussion? Preventing concussion is certainly one of the key aims that as parents and as physicians that we'd really like to um, achieve. Uh, taking care of concussion is great, but if we could prevent it, that'd be even better. And so there's been a lot of attention and marketing to all different sorts of things that could be used to prevent concussion. Mouth guards have been purported to reduce the incidence of concussion. 
But all the studies that we've looked at so far show that uh, mouth guards are terrific at decreasing dental injuries, which is important, but they don't really reduce concussion as far as we can tell. Likewise, there's a lot of uh, headbands or cushioners that in soccer have been advertised to reduce the incidence of concussion. And there's some research that would suggest that perhaps they can decrease the force or blow uh, that goes to head, but there's no research that would show that they can actually decrease the incidence of concussion. And the problem is, is when you put headgear on somebody, that oftentimes it changes the nature of the game. So we know this, for instance, in hockey, that when we put headgear on a lot of the hockey players, the game became a much more violent game because people felt like their head was protected and and the game became much more violent. So it actually potentially could increase the risk of injury. And so we need to be careful about thinking about putting different types of headgear on soccer players um, as a way to reduce the incidence of uh, concussion because that might not be the case. As far as American football goes, um, there's a lot of work on helmet design, and helmets weren't really designed ever to reduce concussion. Helmets were designed to reduce the injury of skull fracture. And so the best helmet is a helmet that fits well, and depending on the shape of your head um, and the shape of the helmet, uh, that might be different for a different person. So I don't think there's any one type of helmet that that you can universally say this is the best helmet for this person. So I I think in terms of um, helmet, the best helmet is a helmet that fits well. And um, and until, you know, hopefully with continuing research and design, we might actually find something that can decrease the incidence of concussion. But right now, um, I think that the best way to prevent concussion is to make sure that people have proper heading technique, that people have proper tackling technique, and that um, or, or body checking technique, depending on the sport that we're talking about, and that there's um, enforcement of the rules that exist um, so that there's fair play. And so those are really the ways I think that right now we have of truly re- reducing the incidence of concussion. Kim, before we let you go, we're just touch on the AMSSM annual meeting, which is going to be in San Diego in April. What do listeners have to look forward to when they're making choices about a conference to go to for this year? The AMSSM meeting is always a a terrific meeting. I think it's the best sports medicine meeting out there. Of course, I'm a little bit biased. Um, This is a meeting that is four and a half days. It's just jam-packed with the latest um, sports medicine information that's out there. It gets the top people in the field to come out and tell you what's happening in um, the hot topics. This year coming out, we have Jill Cook that's going to be talking on tendons. We've got a lot of other speakers. The um, program for the AMSSM should be up in uh, late December on the website, which is amssm.org. And um, uh, the other great thing besides just, I think, the absolutely fantastic program is just the the meeting itself is really fun. There's lots of fun people there. It's, uh, you can network. Um, and so it's really the best sports medicine meeting that I, I, I go to. And we'll provide links on the website, and it's April 17 to 21 in 2013 in San Diego. And I can vouch for that having been a very satisfied customer at those meetings over the last five years or so. 
Kim, I want to congratulate you on this AMSSM position statement, your leadership on that and in AMSSM generally and in sports medicine internationally. It's a terrific position statement because it really contextualizes many of the important documents about concussion in one place and I know our listeners will enjoy working their way through that document. Congratulations and thanks very much for your time, Kim. Thank you. You're listening to Kim Harmon, who's a very experienced team physician at the University of Washington. And don't forget to follow BJSM updates via Twitter. We're at BJSM underscore BMJ. And our blog continues to update hot items in sports medicine three to four times a week. Feel free to email suggestions, use social media, and we look forward to working with you as a sports medicine resource at BJSM. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.